0: The book of Genesis, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord, <clears throat> verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the earth, face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may please be seated. And as you are seating, sitting, let me pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come before you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and in the power and strength of your Holy Spirit. We do ask that this morning, as your word goes forth, that you would, you would sanctify us unto yourself and apart from the world, Lord. We pray that as your word goes forth, that you would give to us ears that are hearing, hearts that are believing, minds that are understanding, and feet, Lord, by the power of your spirit that will obey. Lord, we pray that you would be with us as we journey through these passages, that you would help our minds to be alert, prepared to receive your word. I decrease so that you may increase, be glorified for your glory's sake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The last time that we gathered on the Lord's Day Sabbath, we continued or we followed the scriptures tracing of the two seeds from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 6. We saw that there was a development of two cities that was taking place. There was an, an uncovering, if you will, of two kingdoms, two lines. Two seeds that would be eternally divided, the righteous seed of the woman and the unrighteous seed of the serpent. Last week, we followed the, the patriarchs of these two seeds, Cain and his descendants, the Cainites. Seth and his descendants, the Sethites, the Lord is is making good on his promise to the serpent. Genesis 3.16, he promised, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It is uh, this understanding that we must carry with us when we come, not not only to the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis, but brothers and sisters... uh, Genesis 3.16 is, is the scope through which the Old Testament should be viewed. You, you should see all things of the Old Testament pointing toward that seed who would arrive. That seed who John the Baptist said, Behold the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Old Testament should be viewed through that scripture, through that verse, through the lens of that verse. And this verse... Genesis 3.16 will also aid us in interpreting these difficult verses that are before us today. Let me read them again. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. These verses, they show us the result of sin. These verses, these verses show us the, the culmination, if you will, of sin. As the human, fallen human race multiplies and expands, so does the wickedness of the human heart. As we have said that there is a development of the two seeds, one righteous and one wicked. The word of God traces these two seeds, and these seeds are being traced. And as these seas are being traced, there is an advancement of evil upon the face of the earth. This evil is not taking place behind the scenes. It is at the very forefront of human history. The hearts of men were continually evil all the time. There was, there was an escalation of corruption. There was an escalation of evil that was advancing in the hearts of men. Darkness, if you will. Is falling upon the entire earth. And as this darkness comes to a climax. We see these verses here today. There is a a holy righteous judgment from God. That is at the doorstep of the people of Noah's day. The judgment of God was not coming though. Simply because of the intense wickedness of the people of that day. Did you hear that? The, The judgment from God was not coming simply because of the great wickedness of the people of that day. The people of Noah's day were wicked. The people of Noah's day were were sinful. Wickedness was one of the deciding factors that brought judgment upon the entire earth in that day. But brothers and sisters, let me be clear and clearer than I was last week. The people of Noah's day were no more sinful than the people of our day. I may have have overemphasized the wickedness of the people of Noah's day last week. I said last week we think that we are living in the most evil time in history, but how wicked was the world that once was that God would bring worldwide judgment upon them? And as I begin, to, as I began to think about it, I, I I begin to ask myself, well, has the world gotten any better since then? Has uh, judgment? Or did the judgment of God destroy sin in the earth? It did not. Have men continue to worship other gods? Bow down to idols? Curse God's holy name? Have men continue to to break the Sabbath? Lie, cheat, steal, disobey, murder, and covet? Is judgment coming to this world? Yes. The only difference between the sin of the world that once was and the sin of of ours here today is that we become more sophisticated with our sin. We become more technologically savvy with our sin. But our sin is just as vile and wicked as the sin of Noah's day. Was the sin of Noah's day great? Of course it was. So then, if the wickedness of today is is just as wicked as The sin of yesterday. Then what was the underlying factor? What was the main factor? Sin, wickedness was one of the the deciding factors. But what was the main factor that brought judgment upon the entire world? I submit to you that there is something more that is taking place. That brought judgment upon the entire world. The judgment of God upon the entire world. Brothers and sisters, keep that thought in your mind as we journey through with God's help to seek to understand and explain the first two verses, not the first four, but the first two verses of the book of Genesis, chapter 6. I have just two points for you this morning. The first point has 3 subpoints, sub-points, so pay, pay close attention to this. Point number one, <clears throat> the sons of God. Point number one, the sons of God. Of God, When men began to multiply on the face of the earth, face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Who are these sons of God? Who are these daughters of men? These verses, brothers and sisters, have created much debate since they were penned by the hand of Moses. And there are at least three dominant views as to who or about the identity of the sons of God. And we will briefly discuss each of these this morning before we finally land on what I believe to be the most biblical and biblically consistent within the context of these verses and within the scope of all of scripture. Here's your first subpoint. And this is one of the views. You can say uh, A, right? First view, subpoint is that the sons of God are angels. So more specifically, the sons of God are fallen angels who rebelled against God along with Lucifer. That is one view. Let me make that really clear. This is not my view. This is a view, okay? This view interprets this passage to mean that fallen angels intermarried with human women. And they produced what we find in in verse 4, Nephilim or giants. This is a, a dominant view, one of three dominant views, that fallen angels intermarried with human women. And in their intermarriage, they produced giant men. Now, that may seem like a view that no one could possibly believe. But you would be surprised. That some of the early church fathers, who are some of the brightest minds in all of history, such as Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Cyprian, Ambrose, Lactantius, all of these bright minds held to this particular view that I'm speaking of right now. In favor of that argument, so why would they believe this? There are linguistic reasons that have to do with allusions to the New Testament. Linguistic meaning there are words There are certain things that we find in the New Testament that 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 cause them to say, "Well, these must be fallen angels." They argue that the phrase "sons of God" exclusively, meaning every time you see "sons of God," they argue, refers to angels in the Old Testament. That's their argument. They argue that since this phrase "sons of God" refers to angels everywhere else in the Old Testament it must refer to angels here in Genesis chapter 6. The other text where this phrase is used in the Old Testament is Job chapter 1 and verse 6 and Job 38 and verse 7. Furthermore, there are New Testament passages that appear to allude to this passage in Genesis chapter 6 and indicate that angels are, in fact, the sons of God spoken of in Genesis chapter 6. Those passages are First Peter chapter 2 and 4 and Jude 6 through 7. Now, why would advocates of the angel's view, angels being the son of God, listen now, point to Peter and Jude as their reasons for holding on to this view? Let me ask you a question real quick. Have you ever heard of the book of Enoch? You ever heard of the book of Enoch? It's not in your Bible. What is the book of Enoch? The book of Enoch is a book that dates back to about 100 to 300 B.C. Brothers and sisters, listen closely. It is not accepted as being authoritative by the Jews or by the Christians. But it is seen and viewed as having some historical and theological interest and value. So although the book of Enoch is not accepted as being authoritative, or uh, to use a more theological word, canon, it is valued as being an interesting book, and also an interesting, somewhat theological book. Now, what does the book of Enoch have to do with any of the things that we're talking about right now? Peter and Jude quote the book of Enoch in Second, first Peter and the book of Jude. Now, why does that matter? Because the book of Enoch is an unauthoritative book. Right? And yet Peter and Jude are quoting this book. And what they quote, although the book of Enoch is not authoritative, what they quote, which is in our scripture, now is authoritative. Does that make sense? So what Enoch, although Enoch is not canon... When Peter and Jude quote from Enoch, it becomes, those passages become canon. Although Enoch is not, those excerpts from Enoch are. Isn't that interesting? Therefore, what Peter and and Jude quote becomes canon. Now, brothers and sisters, it is this point that almost won me over to this view. I said almost. Why didn't it? While this angelic view admittedly has some interesting points, there are many problems that must be acknowledged with this view. The first is a hermeneutical problem. Hermeneutical meaning an, an interpretative problem. Hermeneutical interpretative problem. That is, just because a phrase is used in Genesis does not mean that when we see it again elsewhere, especially in the book of Job, that it is having or holding the same meaning. Does that make sense? The book of Genesis is a historical narrative of the patriarchs of Israel. It is meant to be read that way, as a historical, literal uh, book. The The book of Job, on the other hand, is an account of the trials and triumph of a man whose faith was tested by God. How is the book of Job written? It's written in poetic form. Therefore, the phrases... And form of the book of Job must be treated poetically. The phrase sons of God does not have an exclusive meaning, meaning this, that if it means this somewhere, it does not mean the exact same thing somewhere else. Or to say it another way, when we see the phrase sons of God in the Old Testament, it does not always mean the same thing. The second problem with the angelic view is that in Matthew chapter 22 and 30 and Mark 12, 25, which is its cross-reference, the Lord Jesus Christ teaches that in the consummation or in heaven, people will not marry, nor will but they be given in marriage. But we will be like angels. What does that mean? It means angels don't marry and angels are not given in marriage. Marriage is a function of earthly humans, not of angelic beings. Therefore, this statement alone destroys the idea that angels married humans. Furthermore, there is no reference to angels anywhere in the book of Genesis before this passage. And it would seem a bit strange and almost abrupt that they would all of a sudden be introduced without ever being referenced even before this passage. Meaning this inserting angels doesn't fit into the context we are tracing the line of these two seeds. And all of a sudden, hey, angels are marrying humans. Seems a bit weird, doesn't it? Seems a bit abrupt. If we were to take this view that, that, that angels are intermarrying with humans, then it doesn't answer the question, then why does the whole world need to be judged? Why not just the angels and their offspring? It does not answer why only Noah is left and only Noah is righteous. Do you see, brothers and sisters, this view actually creates more problems and creates more questions than it does answer questions for the reader. Finally, if we look at the context of the passage of Peter and Jude, we will see that Peter and Jude are not speaking about angels marrying humans. They're speaking about fornication and more specifically about fornication in the form of homosexuality, not marriage between angels. For all of these reasons and more, we must reject this notion that the sons of God are angels. Subpoint number two. There is a view that also must be given attention, and that is the view of a theologian that I have come to greatly respect. And it is because this passage, uh, It is because of this passage that I've been more introduced to his works. That is the work of Meredith Klein or the view of Meredith Klein that was introduced in the 1960s. And that is that the sons of God are the Cainites, the descendants of Cain. And the daughters of men are the offspring of the the, the daughters of the Sethites. So there's a there's a, a we're going to talk about this in a moment. But the Cainites are the sons of God in Meredith Klein's view. And the daughters of men are the Sethite women, in Meredith Klein's view. It's interesting. And let me also say, this almost convinced me. This view almost convinced me. How could anyone accept that view? Meredith Klein is arguing this. The sons of God are the the descendants of Cain who have become kings. And in their kingly rule, they are engaging in the practice of Royal polygamy. Now you may say, how could anyone accept that view? Think about this. What are the descendants of Cain known as? They're known as city builders. Cain built a city. He names the city Enoch. The Canaanites are known for building cities. What do those who build cities become over those cities? rulers kings over those cities they become kings and what else are the Canaanites known for they are known for being violent men who 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 take wives they're polygamists in Klein's view the Canaanites are marrying the daughters of seth and producing ungodly seeds this passage seems to assume the very nature of the descendants of cain that they are kings who are taking any wives that they choose Klein in his work, Divine Kingship in Genesis, uh, cites Psalm 82, where God declares, You are gods, sons of the Most High, in reference to human magistrates or kings. What does God call these human kings? He calls them gods. For that is how they were viewed by the subjects or their subjects or those within their kingdom. Not that they were actually gods, but they were viewed as being gods. Klein argues that angels are not charged with defending the rights of orphans and widows. So the sons of God in Genesis are not angels, but they are men and men who are royal rulers. Are you following me? Who were the rulers of that day? But the Canaites, those who built cities, those who ruled over those cities, those who took any women that they chose to be their wives. Klein then cites the Sumerian and Babylonian king list, where you find similar genealogies as we see in Genesis 1 through 6 and beyond. There's, there's similar themes there. The Sumerian king list and their similarities is what often causes people to adopt Meredith Klein's view. And although I am greatly intrigued by Meredith Klein, and I almost believed this as well, it was not convincing enough for me to accept this as my own. And let me say, not because this passage is subjective. Hear that? Not because Genesis chapter 1 or 6, verses 1, to two, one through 2 is subjective. Meaning, uh, I get to decide what I believe is right. And then that becomes what is right. That's not the case. There is one biblical meaning to this text. There is one actual meaning to this text. That uh, There is that which the scriptures are intending for us to understand. And there is a false view. Does that make sense? The scriptures have one meaning. It is our job to find that meaning. If it's not what the scriptures teach, then it's false. While these two views are interesting, they are false. Not according to my estimation, but according to the teachings of God's holy word. God's holy word has the final rule. God's holy word is the, is the final rule of faith and obedience. God's word will have the final word, whether we believe it's true or not. With that said, we must reject Meredith Klein's view. Because ultimately, it is not consistent with the teachings of Scripture. And again, just because the sons of God is used elsewhere, describing civil magistrates or judges, does not mean that it always means the same thing. So although it means judges and kings in Psalm 82, it doesn't mean judges and kings in Genesis chapter 6. We are consistent with that argument. See that? So we use the same application that we did for the first argument for the second argument. Although it is a different kind of argument, it still has the same principle. That's doing hermeneutics. Does that make sense? When Psalm 82 refers to sons of God, it is referring to kings and judges of that day. Who were not administering just justice and not caring for the orphans and the widows of that day. But the sons of God in Genesis are not kings and rulers. There's no evidence anywhere in all of scripture that kings or monarchs ever came from the line of Cain. But once again, this view does not flow within the context of what we have learned thus far. And that's why we reject it. Which brings us to our most biblically consistent view. Here's your third subpoint. The sons of God are the Sethites. The sons of God are the Sethites. Let me just say real quick as you're writing that down. It's important for you to be familiar with those other views. Not just say, well, that's obvious. It's the Sethites. But how do you know? Have you considered any other arguments? And these other arguments almost won me over. It's important for you to know what these views are. All that we are studying, again, must be understood through the lens of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. We say that again. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. As we study through God's word, we're not intended to take our eyes off of that promise. Do you see how saying angels and humans are intermarrying? How how that that distracts us from what God is doing in Genesis 316, doesn't it? You got distracted by the, the, the giants, didn't you? Who are these giants? Who are these angels? What have you done? What have we done? We've lost or we we lose sight of what God is intending for us to focus on. And that is this seed who was coming to destroy the works of Satan and the two seeds who will come from the man. One righteous and one wicked. Keep your eyes on that. That's the point. And that's why the other two views are so, uh, must be rejected because they do distract us. They do take our minds off of these two seeds and the one seed who will come and reverse what Adam has done in the garden. Keep your eyes on the coming of the skull-crushing seed of the woman. Be watchful. Wait for his appearance. And as you wait, people of the Old Testament, the Lord is separating the wheat from the chaff. As we watch and as we are watchful, the Lord God promised that there would be a war between two seeds. The righteous seed. Of the woman and the wicked seed of the serpent. And as those in the Old Testament waiting for the skull crusher, the war between the two seeds would rage on. The seeds of the serpent would wage war against the seeds of the woman. The devil would attempt to destroy every seed of the woman in hopes that he would be able to prevent his own destruction in order that he might save his own skull. So as man increased on the earth, So did every thought, every intention of his heart that was only evil continually. The violence and corruption of mankind abounded so intensely that even the sons of God, those of the godly line of Seth, were taken. With the bait, by the bait of the sensual delights of the daughters of men, the wicked line of Cain. That's the flow of the context. Again, we are tracing the line of these two seeds. And as those of the Old Testament waited for the coming Messiah, God was developing these two lines. The Messiah will come through the righteous line of Seth. He will be born through that line. But there's a growing problem. There's an escalation of evil that is now threatening the birth of the righteous one. This rapidly growing evil closing in around the righteous line through which the skull crusher will be born. The sons of God, according to the scriptures, according to the context, according to the scope of Christ as being the scope of scripture, is, we believe, the Sethites. And the daughters of men, they are the Canaanites. Which brings us to our next point. The importance of the sons of God. Very simply, the importance of the sons of God. I do pray that those those three views were clear, and I do pray that the third view was clear enough for you and was an easy fit into the context of what we've learned thus far. Our second point the son of the importance of the sons of God. Verse 1 and 2. When men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you a question. Why does this passage even matter? Why does this even matter? Why is this passage important enough for us to spend an entire Lord's Day Sabbath concerning its meaning? Brothers and sisters, we must take careful note at the heart of the Sethites and learn from their compromise. What do I mean? They were living in a world that was rapidly increasing in corruption after the fall of man. The Sethites, who had formerly kept up a pure and distinct communion with God by calling upon the name of God, listen, have now lost all sense of true religion and have broke the bounds of their just separation by intermingling, by intermarrying with the unrighteous daughters of men. Those of the godly line of Seth allowed themselves to become enticed by the beauty of the wicked Canaanite women. It was not that they found out for the first time that women were beautiful. They were enticed by the beauty of these women. And there seems to be a, a, listen to this, a republication of the fall in the garden. For what does God's word say concerning the Sethites who were walking with God? The sons of God, what? Saw. I've I've been emphasizing these words. Saw the daughters of men were attractive. And they did what? And they took as their wives, any they chose. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? The righteous seed of the woman, the Sethites are behaving like their mother who was created righteous, who walked with God in the garden until she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight of the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. And what did she do? The Bible says she took of its fruit and ate. Is that coincidental? Do you think Moses who was writing this. Is using these same phrases. Just coincidentally. Seeing and taking. That which is forbidden. No. Brothers and sisters. Moses is is drawing our attention to something. He is showing us that the righteous line of Seth. Are once again following the patterns. Of their parents. Who fell in the garden. They were created righteous. And they rebelled against God. And so now are the Sethites. Although. They were created to worship God. They were called. To walk with God by faith. They forsook their communion. And worship with God. For the lust of the eyes. The lust of the flesh. And the pride of life. And just as Adam and Eve were judged for their disobedience, so to the Sethites and all of the world would be judged for its disobedience to God. Now we must ask, at this very important stage, what does that have to do with the rest of Scripture? Because Scripture is connected to Scripture. Scripture is not isolated from one another. There is something that God has begun here in the book of Genesis that will continue throughout the rest of the Bible and even here today. As sin increasingly spread throughout the world, the godly Sethites had a promise from God. Listen to this. That rest from corruption of sin, rest from their painful toil would come through the skull crushing seat of the woman. And so they walked by faith. They had a rich heritage of believers who went before them that laid down the example of of how to walk with God by faith. And in the midst of of increasing evil, they continued to walk with God. In, In the midst of a world that was increasingly becoming darker and darker, they walked with God. They benefited from the preaching of the patriarchs like Seth, like Enoch, like Lamech, like Noah, and they were all blessed to witness before their very eyes the very translation of the prophet Enoch. Who entered into the very rest that he prophesied of for 300 years. They saw it with their own eyes. And they continued to walk with God by faith. All of these were provided for them. That that, that these might be an anchor for their souls in times of desperation. In times of despair. All of these were provided So that although darkness increased, they might fix their eyes on Jesus, whom they only saw through a glass dimly. But so that they might know that their hope is not in vain, that they would not be put to shame in the end. And yet, and yet, in spite of all of these benefits provided to them by the Lord, in spite of all of these means of grace, graciously given to them by the Lord. They forfeited all of these benefits as they were smitten by the comeliness of the wicked. They allowed the beauty and the allure of this world to cloud the vision of the skull crusher. Rather than fixing their eyes on the author and finisher of their faith, they allowed their eyes to be fixed upon temporal pleasures of this world. You see that? They forfeited the promise of the eternal Sabbath rest for fleeting temporal pleasures. Imagine that. Trading that which is eternally good for that which is temporally satisfying. And as has so often been said, they chose to fashion mud pies in the slums over and against an eternal holiday at the sea. Dear one, sin is alluring. That, that's, that's the pattern we see in Scripture. That, that God calls the righteous, and yet the righteous are continually drawn in by the, the allures of the world. Sin is alluring, but its end is death. Sin is enticing, but it, it, its end is judgment and eternal separation. The sons of God chose to worship and serve created things rather than the Creator who was forever blessed. And as we have said... This is one of the main factors that would bring judgment upon the entire earth. But it is not the factor. This intermarriage that we see in Genesis chapter 6 among the sons of God and the daughters of men produces corruption in the godly line. And it points forward to the idolatry that would later characterize Israel as they would intermarry with pagan nations. When we study the first five books of the Bible... There are numerous warning after warning from Moses against, against, against intermarriage with unbelievers. Let me pause on that for just a moment for all of you single people here. There are warnings against, against, against intermarriage with unbelievers. In Genesis 16, we find Abraham, the man of faith, acting in unbelief. When he takes and impregnates his wife's servant, Hagar, in order to bear a child rather than trusting that God would bring the promised seed through the, the, his wife, Sarah, as he promised, he compromises and marries with someone or, or lays with someone, not marries, lays with someone who is not of the godly line. What does the apostles, the apostle Paul say? Will I join my flesh to a prostitute? Will I be joined? Will Christ, if I am in Christ, be joined to a prostitute? This is what the Bible says. We see Isaac's son, Esau, marrying outside the family of faith and taking a, a canine woman to be his wife. Listen, despite his father, Esau takes a canine woman just to spite his father who forbade that act. Don't marry the Canaanites, he said. But the Bible says in Genesis 28, listen to what it says. When Esau saw that canine woman, that the Canaanite woman did not please Isaac, his father. Esau went to Ishmael. Who's is Ishmael? He is the, the son of Hagar. He is of the unrighteous line. He goes to Ishmael and takes one of Ishmael's wives. He saw and he took. You see that? This is no coincidence from scripture. Moses is not doing this by accident. It is intentional. This is the pattern of unbelievers marrying unbelievers or believers marrying unbelievers. And it continues throughout history, the history of Israel. And it was a constant rebuke from the Lord. This command against marrying, intermingling, Believers and unbelievers is not isolated to the Old Testament. It rings just as true in the New Testament, especially in the words of Paul. Second Corinthians 614. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The Apostle Paul is using this analogy of two oxen. The the two oxen were often paired together to plow a field. In preparation for harvest. But in this case. The Apostle Paul is using this analogy that it is not two oxen that are being joined together, but an ox and an animal of a different species. How can they work together to plow a field and prepare it for harvest? What is the harvest? What are we called to do as families? We are called to, with our wives, raise our wives up, disciple them with our children, raise them up and disciple them so that they might also produce other believers Raised in a home where the gospel is being taught, how can you do that in a home where there is one ox and one of a different species, one believer and one of a different kind or an unbeliever? That's the the point the, the Apostle Paul is making. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has darkness with light or light with darkness? What accord, what union has Christ with Bilal? The devil or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul is teaching in accordance with what God commanded in the Old Testament. There is a consistent command from God. Come out from among them. Be ye separated from among them. You cannot love God and love this world. Whoever loves this world does not love God, but you are an enemy of God. As believers, we cannot allow ourselves to be enticed by the allures of this world. Young people who are here, listen to me. The world is attempting to draw you in. It's attempting to allure you with its pleasures. Do not allow yourselves to be corrupted. Do not allow yourselves to be corrupted by being united with unbelievers. If you are single, what business do you have pursuing an unbeliever? If you are single, what business do you have pursuing an unbeliever? If they are not sitting in, a, in another church or in this church along with you and you are seeing them, stop. 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 If you are married to an unbeliever, pray the Lord converts them and that you are being used as a means through which they can be evangelized with the gospel. But don't be one person here and be another person there. Because you will be a harm, a hindrance of the gospel, not a witness of the gospel. Our problem is that we don't think that we are as weak as we really are. We think we can handle it. We believe that we're stronger than we are, that we can somehow mingle with the world and not be influenced by the world. Don't fool yourselves. Don't fool yourselves. You cannot commune with the world and not eventually walk like them, talk like them and soon find yourself in the same bed with them. Don't be deceived. The apostle Paul says bad company corrupts good character. Brothers and sisters, we must learn from the Sethites. Learn from them. Learn from the Israelites. Obey the commands of God. Don't fall into the same trappings of the Sethites. They did not preserve the purity of the line of Seth. And this helps us to explain the main factor of why universal judgment was coming upon all flesh. Was wickedness a problem? Yes. Was it the problem? No. The greater factor of this intermingling, this intermarriage that was taking place was that because of the intermarriage and the intermingling of the righteous and the ungodly, there became a threat to the birth of the skull-crushing seed of the woman. The promised one was being threatened. That is the reason why Universal judgment comes upon the earth. There is increasing evil. The lure of sin, the marriage between the two seeds has produced corruption. And it was now threatening the one righteous seed who would crush the head of the serpent. This was the plan and scheme of the evil one. You know that, right? The skull crusher is coming to the woman. Okay. Well, then I will destroy and corrupt every seed that comes from the woman. The corruption of the righteous line and the threat upon the Holy One of God. Is the primary reason for the judgment that was coming by way of the flood. There is a threat, and the righteous seed, the skull crusher, must be preserved. The godly line of the Sethites have all passed away. Think about this. One by one they are dying. Or they are being corrupted. See that? One by one they are dying. There are still some who are left just months before the fall or before the, the flood. But one by one, they are either dying or they, be, they are becoming corrupted. Is there any hope? There is always hope. There is always hope. Post tenebrous Luke's after darkness, light. There will always be a glimmer of light. As we said last week, there was always a remnant. There was always a grain of salt. There was always a glimmer of light because God will have the victory. God will not be defeated. God will have his victory. God will always preserve a people for himself. And among all the peoples on all of the earth, there still walks a man with God. He is not sinless. He was made righteous by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. But he is a preacher by the grace of God of righteousness. And he will be used by God to preach repentance and faith to the wicked. For 120 years. Before God brings judgment upon the entire earth. He is Noah. And Noah will be used as a type of Christ. Christ. To point forward to the righteous one who will save his people from the wrath of God. Who will also be a preacher of righteousness. Who will also walk with God by faith. And he will truly be righteous. Truly be righteous. The sons of God. They forsook their calling. To be separated from the world. They forsook the call to raise up generations to walk after God. They turned from their walk with God to walk with Satan but God will always preserve a people for himself. God will always have a voice that is crying out in the wilderness, and the church will always overcome the gates of hell. To God be the glory. Friends, in this dark world that is becoming increasingly darker, keep your eyes fixed on the author and finisher of your faith, the Lord Jesus Christ for judgment is coming and I am along with the other elders and along with those who preach the gospel in this generation we are types of Noah if you will who are calling men to repent of their sins who are calling men to trust in Christ to escape the judgment of God that is coming not by water and as I said by last week but by fire he will return he promised he will return And he is bringing two things. He is bringing a sword of judgment and a crown of righteousness. What will he give to you? What will he present to you? Let us pray.